Hippocrates, O great physician of Greece, I come to you because... Before I hear another word, I need you to initial here and sign here. This establishes that you have been informed that nature is made of four elements, water, earth, wind, and fire, and therefore, in a similar way, the body consists of four fluids or humors, black bile, yellow bile, phlegm, and blood. Okay, but why do I need to know that? It's just something the lawyers have me do. As you wish. You are the greatest physician in the world. Do you know that I discovered the rectum? How is that possible? Certainly people must have been aware of it. Oh, no. I mean, do you know the song, I Discovered the Rectum? All of the kids are singing it these days. I am here to talk about my terrible headaches. I don't actually treat headaches. That would use too much of my time. Headaches are treated over there. Where those animals are? Monkey dogs. I buy them from a special breeder in northern Italy. I teach them how to treat headaches. I charge for supervising their work. For instance, hey, monkey dog, what did I say about climbing up on a patient's? I also have chest infections. Now we're talking. I use a lead pipe to drain those abscesses. You'll be good as new. How much will that cost? Forty thousand million drachmas. I cannot afford that. Okay, ten drachmas. How did it come down so far? Because I have no idea what anything costs. It's a, it's a very complicated system. I, excuse me. What did I say about biting? Only if they don't bring their copay. Bad monkey dog. What were we talking about? Cost. Oh, yes. Maybe I should run some tests on you. I just got this new machine. It's a water clock hooked up to some gears, screws, rotary mills, a, a brass casting thing, a torsion catapult, a thing that makes steam, and a chart to find prime numbers. It's basically everything we know how to do. What does it test for? I have no idea. The salesman was very persuasive. He said all the doctors have one, and if I didn't, I'd lose my patience and die a pauper. Do me a favor, sit here and handle intake while I get the monkey dogs quieted down. And now he paid $500,000 to have an evil spirit removed from his stomach, and it turned out to be Alex Jones. Colin McEnroe, bad monkey dog, we do not poop in the exam rooms! All right, Hippocrates having his own problems uh, running his practice. I had no idea. Uh, I've been taught a very different view of him. So I've been brooding about this for a long time, about the way that we talk about the problem of healthcare in America and how to fix the problem of healthcare in America, and specifically how we talk about the solutions that are on the table before us. And every once in a while on other shows like The Wheelhouse, you will hear me vent about this. Um, but I decided actually it would be good if I actually knew something as opposed to just venting all the time. So um, it turns out there's sort of a go-to book. I will say that, you know, if, I don't know, 20 more million, million people read this book, A, Elizabeth Rosenthal would be a, a wealthy woman, but B, I think people would actually understand the healthcare system well enough to understand what it's going to take to fix it. And the answer to that is almost none of the things that have been proposed so far. Although within the Affordable Care Act, as I've learned from reading this book, there's some good things. But ultimately, the biggest problem and the reason that you're, if you if you have an ACA policy, like I buy an ACA policy for my son, and the deductible is really high, the premium is really high. The reason that they're really high is because healthcare just really costs a lot of money in America compared to anywhere else. So Elizabeth Rosenthal has written An American Sickness, How Healthcare Became a Big Business uh, and How You Can Take It Back. She is both a journalist and a doctor uh, uh, in studio with me, also both a journalist and a doctor, well, a podiatrist technically, uh, Dan Har, a blogger and columnist for the Hartford Current. No, not actually 
That's not any a real doctor. <laughs> no, podiatrists are real doctors. No, don't get that started. I, I do get, play an economist on TV. Yeah, I get tons of emails about this. So, um, first of all, Elizabeth Rosenthal, great book, and uh, thanks for being on the show. Oh, thanks for having me. I think uh, everyone should wise up to what's going on. Right. So, uh, it's hard to know where to begin because there's so much ground to cover. I'm going to just sort of pick the thing that, that I keep telling people. So, one of the things that we did with the Inf- Affordable Care Act is essentially double down or at least not let go of the notion that the private markets were a good way to control costs, that if you basically um, invest the the private insurance market with the ability to decide how much it's going to pay for an MRI or uh, a, a fistula op- operation or the removal of a bunion, that the, the market, in a very Adam Smith way, will sort this out and come up with the lowest reasonable payment for it. Um, as your book points out a million different ways that that's not true. But but pick one of the ways. I mean, why isn't that true? Why don't insurance companies, as opposed to the government, which is supposedly notoriously wasteful, um, why don't insurance companies, why aren't they lean and mean and insistent on the absolute lowest price for a, a bunion removal? Well, I, I mean, this is one of the great fictions that's been promoted by the health insurance industry, that they're on in your corner. You know, we negotiated on your behalf. Um, does anyone think that about their car insurance? You don't think your car insurer is in your corner when you get into a crash. You know, basically, these companies are just pass-throughs, right? They collect premiums, and they pay out claims. And as one insurance uh, um, executive said to me in the book, they're too, they're too big to care about you. You know, it, you're not their customer, really. They're for-profit companies, and their customers are their shareholders. So how do they think about this? Now, I've gone to insurers and said, you know, when they paid out a $117,000 claim for an assistant surgeon, you know, crazy, crazy amount of money when Medicare would have paid at most maybe 2000 for that case. I said, why did you pay that? And they said, look, you know... It's not our job to scrutinize these things. In order to, to vet this bill, we would have to hire some investigators. We'd probably have to go to court against this doctor because we don't have a commercial relationship with him. Um, it's, it's easier to just, it's cheaper, not just easier to just pay it. And P.S., they said to me as a journalist, you're not going to write this in the newspaper, right, because then others will know they can do this and get away with it. So, you know, um, false notion one is that your insurers will work hard on your behalf. Uh, they won't. And P.S., what the ACA did was, in a weird way, create a perverse incentive. You know, before, insurers sometimes were, were spending only um, 60% of the money they collected in premiums on claims. The ACA said you had to spend at least 80 or 85% to be an insurer. That was, in theory, a great thing. And the the history of high-priced health care is the road to hell is paved in good intentions. You know, this sounded like a good idea. But guess what? If you're an insurer... And you want to keep your revenues up for all those shareholders and those, you know, insurance execs who, as we know, are sometimes paid $30, $40 million a year. How do you keep your revenues up if you used to be spending 60% and now uh, uh, you used to be keeping 40% and now you can only keep 20%? Well, the answer is you increase the pie. You pay out more claims so that you can keep a bigger amount of money. So, uh, you know, if you're a, a good-hearted insurer who's caring just about your patients, you don't do that. But um, these guys are in business. Yeah, I, I, you know, I 
Uh, first of all, I think that 80 to 85 percent thing is a really important thing. It's one of the things that I did learn from your book is that under the ACA, just to repeat that. So um, if uh, if you're paying, if you are required to use 80 to 85 percent of the money on patient care uh, and then you keep the rest for yourself. Uh, and we should emphasize Medicare does like 98 percent, something like that. Um, yeah. So um, 97, 96, 97. Somewhere yeah. in there. OK, so. Uh, all you have to do is spend 80 to 85 percent uh, of the money that comes in. It's got to go out to, for patient care. So if you spend thousand uh, dollars for a particular kind of patient care, uh, then y- you can only keep you know 15 to 20 percent of that. Uh, y- if you spend ten thousand dollars, same thing. That 15 to 20 percent that you can keep becomes much bigger. Although I still doesn't. I don't know. I, I'm going to Danny. I can see you're ready to jump. Uh, I just want to ask one more thing. Like I don't expect Elizabeth insurance companies to do their best on my behalf. I expect insurance companies to do their best on their behalf. You know, and if my, just to use your analogy, if my auto insurance company, you know, was told by the body shop that replacing my bumper was going to cost $35,000, they just wouldn't pay it. They'd say, that's not what bumpers cost. Bumpers don't cost $35,000. Give us another price. Yeah, so That's the problem, though. We don't have standards of what anything should cost in medicine, so it's very hard for them to go back and say, um, you know, this is way. I mean, look at the variation in the price of a vitamin D test within New York: seven dollars to seven hundred dollars. If you're an insurer, what are you going to say? You know, uh, well, it can be all over. There is no fixed or rationalized price in this country for medical procedures, and that's a big part of the problem. All right. So one of the big picture questions here is whether we have a broken free market system that is a hybrid because, as you know, half, uh, as you've written, half or a little bit more than half of all payment is public. Uh, But the half that's not public and the half of the public that's influenced by the private market, uh, is it broken or is it is it just simply inherently not possible to make it work? Because I see in this discussion a little bit of both. Elizabeth? Um, Yeah, I, I think it. To me, it is very hard to make a market-based system work without some kind of price regulation, negotiation at a large-scale level, and rationalization. And I think we've learned that from countries all over the world. And, you know, other countries, we like to say, oh, everything else is socialized medicine. It's not. I mean, the the other countries run the gamut from um, a, a... a, a totally socialized system like uh, the UK or Canada to a very market-based system, but there's always some kind of price ras- rationalization. And that is not necessarily the, the kind of parity that we tend to use, which is like the government comes in and says, you know, you doctors, this is what you're going to charge. In a place like Germany, in a place like Japan, those prices are set as a result of large-scale negotiations between the government insurers where they exist and physician providers. And so, and that's the same kind of negotiation, oddly, we do, you know, a hundred million times each day in the U.S. because we don't do it nationally. 
Right. And, and so the result of that, just to put it in, in concrete terms, one of the many, many patient stories you tell in the book is about a man who's over in Japan. He has a kidney stone, which is not like that big a deal. But, it, you know, I mean, it's not nothing either. So he goes through the entire protocol for the treating of the kidney stone, including the expelling uh, of the kidney stone, you know, full patient care at a private practice in Japan. And he's getting very nervous because he, you know, obviously thinks his insurance is not going to apply over he, over in Japan. He's, in a, he's from the U.S. and they won't take U.S. credit cards at the practice. And then he finds out it's $281 for the whole thing. Um, and I assume that's part of the result of some kind of national price-setting strategy. What does a kidney stone treatment actually cost? Right. And I think Japan has a very interest. And I'm, I'm not endorsing one approach or another, but I'm saying we kind of have to choose from, um, from the realistic options. And we can't go on, which is what we've done with this crazy hybrid system that chooses kind of none of the above. That's not really an option. So what they do in Japan, which I think is really an interesting thing to think about, is the initial prices they allow to be set are quite high. You know, if you have the super duper new MRI machine that never existed before and you're opening up this great new world of diagnosis and treatment, you can set the price really high. Or a brand new drug that changes the future of uh, people with chronic leukemia. You can set the price really high. But every two years, that price has to come down. Because after 20 years, it's no longer a, a fancy new breakthrough technology. And what we see in the U.S. is often the opposite, that you look at uh, an MRI machine, and yeah, they're a little bit better than they were before, but the price here just goes up and up and up. There's no standardization. I mean, you look at MRIs, they could go maybe, if you're really lucky, for $500, and maybe... Um, if you're not lucky, as one of my kids had in an emergency room, $15,000. So, you know, what's it worth? Now, P.S., that same test in Japan is now priced at about 100 to $150, depending on whether you're getting the newer version or the older version. So I'm not saying 100 and $150 is the right price, but I am saying, you know, 15000 is crazy. So, Dan, so, just, yeah, you have something you want to go, say. No, go no. ahead. Well, I was, I was going to say to you, I mean, one thing that we did, I think it was about five years ago. I wish I remembered the guy's name. There was a congressman, I think from Iowa, who, and I think he was a doctor, too. He intentionally dropped his coverage, the tr tremendous gold-plated coverage that Congress gets for health care. And he went without health insurance just to see what that was like. And then he negotiated everything. He did basically what Elizabeth proposes at the, in the second half of her book. I mean, he, he asked a lot of questions, and he tried to find out how much things cost. But, I mean, like a lot of people, he found that if he called a radiology center and said, how much does an MRI actually cost? Often they said, we don't know. And he'd, he'd say, well, ask somebody who does know. There must be somebody there who knows. And they'd say, no, there's nobody here who knows. We know how much we charge Aetna. You know, we know how much we charge uninsured. We, you know, we don't really know exactly how much it costs. And, and, you know, as somebody who writes about business and economies, I mean, that's what makes this whole system different from any other economy. Like, you know, somebody knows how much a Ford Fusion with, you know, X number of options costs. Oh, I had that happen two years ago with some tests that I needed that were uh, that I was going to have to pay for as over the deductible. And I before I went. I, I had time. And by the way, in this pricing question, one of the big problems, uh, as Elizabeth, you've written, is that you, you don't have the luxury of pricing, even if there's transparency, which there isn't, 80% of the time, where I don't know if it's 80 or 90 or whatever it is, but most people who are the consumers of big ticket items in the medical system are not in a position at that moment when they can price things out. But I did try to get some prices for this series of tests, and it was going to take me about two weeks of back and forth letter writing when 
when they finally said, oh, what the heck, we're going to pay for it. And another example along the lines you were saying, I was billed, and Elizabeth, you've had this in your book, I was billed for out-of-network uh, lab tests by my doctor who's in my network. So I got a $750 bill for some tests. And I just called up and said, I'm not going to pay this. And uh, now I understand that most people don't have the debate skills of a veteran columnist, uh, and I won that debate. And they said, okay, but they had to listen to me for 10 minutes. Now, is that a fair way to run a pricing system? I guess not. Elizabeth, you want to react to that? No, of course it's not a fair way to run a pricing system. And I want to say two things. You know, when you ask, well, how much is this going to cost? What's the price? We act in this country as if it's unknowable. But I would say... With computer technology, it's totally knowable. When you go into a pharmacy, at that point, they know your insurance. I mean, as does your doctor and the hospital. Um, and they say, this is what your copay is. They could know that at your doctor's office just as easily um, or at the uh, at the hospital just as easily. It is knowable. And as proof of that, um, you know, in, in Australia, it's considered when a patient goes in for an elective surgery to know exactly... Uh, what the total charges are, and what your patient responsibility is. These things are knowable, but because of the way the market works, it's better for many providers not to let us know them. And and it's kind of, you know, and everyone points fingers at everybody else, and I understand it's kind of a, co it's a collective problem because the doctors say, we can't tell you because we don't know what the insurers will pay, and the insurance say, well, it depends on your employer, not on us. It's, you know, how your policy works, where they've set the deductible, um, and everyone's pointing the finger at everyone else, But um, and that's because we have no system that pulls it all together. So I, I think, uh, yes, you know, it is a terrible burden to put on patients to expect anyone to spend two weeks on the phone, you know, trying to figure out, hey, I'm going in for a colonoscopy. How much is that going to cost? Is my anesthesiologist going to be in network or am I going to be stuck with a crazy bill? Um, I th I, what I answer is twofold, is that, first of all, where you can, you should ask, because not all of medicine is an emergency. Some of it is elective. And where you can, you should ask. First of all, that will ensure and help you get lower prices, because you can say, hey, doc, as I do to my doctor now, um, I know you want to send out a lab test, but send it to these two labs because they're in network. Um, I, I don't, and I'll give them, give my doctor the the place to send the lab because it will. I'll get the seven dollar test instead of the seven hundred dollar one, because most doctors' uh, computers now are programmed to send it to their hospital, which is likely going to be the most expensive lab and may not be in network. Um, the second thing is, if you don't ask, you know, you end up in these crazy positions of some of the patients in the book where. Um, you know, we can say, oh, it's really hard to ask, but there's one woman in the book who's, as she's being rolled into the operating room for an emergency appendectomy, someone from the business office comes up and says, uh, you know, we need a credit card for a deposit. And she's <laughs> like, um, you know, I'm in a gown. I don't have a clothes, the IV. I, I, I don't have a credit card with me. And they're like, I'm sorry, you know, we can't proceed with the surgery until we get a credit card. Is there someone you can call? And she says, well, I don't have a cell phone. And they're like, oh, we'll get you a cell phone. And she, insanely, as she's being wheeled in for an emergency appendectomy, is calling a friend to get a credit card number for a deposit. So I feel like, okay, if we don't start where we can pushing back against this stuff, we're going to be the ones lying on the stretcher, you know, being held hostage. Right. And I mean, you know, in terms of the colonoscopy, 
I mean, if you were going to buy a car, you'd probably look at four or five different cars. You might drive around to different dealerships and do test drives and have conversations and price things out. Um, in fact, just pricing out a colonoscopy by phone, uh, if you can get any straight answers out of anybody, is less of a burden. Danny, what is it? So, you to want your to big picture question about the business model, it seems to me that we have this three point what is it six trillion dollar? We just passed ten thousand dollars for every man, woman, and child. I think last year, according to CMS, but we have this this machine, and we can't afford to use it. In other words, if if everybody got everything that they wanted, we couldn't be able to afford to use it. Even if the rational prices dropped from three point six trillion down to two trillion, which is where they ought to be if you take out the excess cost, we still p- couldn't basically afford to use it. So it seems to me that there is some mechanism of gatekeeping in every national system or every hybrid system. Uh, you know, in in England, they have to wait a long time for any elective surgery. Uh, th- there's there's a system of gatekeeping here that the insurance companies are providing, albeit in a, a sort of a ham-handed way. Is that not uh, something that is providing a service that's worth X percent, 15 or 20 percent, depending on what it is? I don't know. I doubt it's worth that much. But there's some value to the idea of figuring out rationally who can have what, because absent any mechanism to, 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 to keep the gate, it'll, it'll go amok on the demand side. Is that not the case? Um, personally, I don't think so, because uh, I think the insurance companies are not very good gatekeepers. Um, it's the one resource they have, recourse they have. You know, I hear now from physicians who are being asked to get pre-approvals for 300-year-old drugs that their patients have been on for 20 years. You know, I think it's it's a like as you said, it's it's ham-handed, ham-handed. Um, and I would take issue with the fact that we can't afford to give everything uh, people everything they want. I think people are very poor consumers of health care, and doctors order way too much um, uh, for most patients. Look, my, doc, my, my mom goes to the doctor, and she'll come back and go, oh, you know, it was a really good visit, but she didn't even order any blood tests. Well, it's because she doesn't need any blood tests, right? And, and this is where I say patients have to change their ideas, too. Um, you know, our system is primed to order things and to order expensive things. My daughter goes into an emergency room, and this is a true story in college, with some stomach pain. She gets, you know, CAT scan, uh, sonogram, MRI, you know, total of $50,000 for stomach pain. She was back taking a final in six hours, you know. That's crazy. And she didn't ask to have those things. And frankly, as the person paying those bills, if someone said to me, we're going to order these three things, I would have and it's we're going to charge you, you know, nine thousand, twelve thousand and fifteen thousand dollars for them, even though I'm not paying, I would say, forget it. You know, that that's a nutty. So the notion that we can't give people what they want, I don't think it's what they want necessarily. I think it's what our system is primed to provide. So if you look at knee and hip replacements, for example, um, you know, I, I think getting down the price, uh, uh, these are really good procedures, and people people often need them, um, but they often get them too too soon in this country and too often. I mean, the latest studies show, and this is not for knee replacement, but for arthroscopic surgery, that that doesn't work. Um, and yet we do it so often in this country. I mean, I don't know anyone who hasn't had arthroscopic surgery. Um, I'm a runner. Um, 
middle aged and and the studies show that that it really doesn't help and yet everyone gets it. Actually, so, I, I should say I'm somebody who was told 12 years ago that I had to get a knee replacement or at least that I had the kind of knees that just basically get replaced. I, I still haven't had them replaced, but I thought one of the more chilling or interesting moments in your book, Elizabeth, or one of the descriptions, you, you were talking about some of these joints, which um, these yeah. artificial joints and and what they cost, and it's twenty five, thirty, thirty five thousand dollars. And just as a little aside, you mentioned that uh, in in many instances the salespeople for these things who are paid by commission, they're not you know necessarily absorbed into the overall cost of the company. If they open the wrong size one, they have to be obviously obviously packaged in a very sterile way. If they open the wrong size one by mistake, they're docked like two hundred dollars <laughs> because right. they and don't really cost thirty five thousand dollars. <laughs> Right. There's no market for these things. And I think, you know, if you look at a, a, a hospital bill from Belgium, um, these things are priced, you know, three to five thousand dollars, which is still probably, you know, they're, they're still making a good profit on that. But so because, you know, how do you choose your artificial joint? Well, you don't choose it. Your doctor says this is what you should get. And um, how does your doctor choose that? What you find is often when you peel back the layers, uh, artificial joints are the doctors are very brand loyal. Like it's like switching from a Mac to a PC. It's hard to switch from one joint to another. And they, those those loyalties are cultivated from residency on. So uh, one hospital be, will be a striker hospital and another will be a biomed hospital. And you learn on that joint. You get to know the reps. Uh, you want that joint. Those joints have to be put in on on tables that are um, compatible with those joints. And, you know, these are highly exacting procedures. So you want your legs to be even after you have your joint replacement. To, to the point, though, where a salesman or a joint rep is even in the OR when you get that joint put in. So, you know, where's the market working there? It's a highly, highly, highly distorted market. Idea. So one of the forces driving prices here is the, is the lack of, uh, I guess I shouldn't use the word elasticity, is the fact that, that people will pay 10 times more for virtually any medical service if they perceive it to be 1% better than the same medical service someplace else. So there's a hospital here, a system here of two uh, mid-sized hospitals or smallish uh, Eastern Connecticut Health Network in which they're essentially starting to advertise price on joint replacement. And they're going to say, we're going to give you the better, the same quality. We're going to be a lower price. And I say, well, how, do you gonna, how are you going to get people to go from uh, Hartford and St. Francis and Yale where the same doctor is doing 15 a month of these things or 20 or 30 or 50 to you're doing just a relatively few? And they say, well, you know, in those big hospitals, the doctors aren't necessarily necessarily doing the actual work. Here we are. And so we're starting, in my view, it's at least with a little bit of anecdotal evidence, to see some competition on price. Uh, isn't that a good thing uh, within a broken system? Yeah. No, I think some competition on price is a good thing in a broken system. And I think greater price transparency, whatever direction we go in, um, is is certainly a powerful and important first step. I mean, I, I often joke I'm waiting to see, you know, I, I uh, am from New York where there are three or four really great hospital systems. I'm waiting for one of them to put up a billboard that says um, no surprise bills, um, set prices. And I'll go there for most things. You know, I don't care. Uh, most They all do a great job on most everything. Now, I think another interesting model that pushes this kind of price transparency and price awareness, which I find fascinating, 
has to be propelled by some of the large employers, which I would like to see more employers do. And it's something called reference pricing. And the way it worked in California is a bunch of employers, large employers and unions got together and said, what should it cost in California to get a really high quality hip replacement? And they went to a bunch of academics and looked at different, you know, hundreds of centers and said, okay, well, you can get a good one in California for $43,000, I think is the number they picked. Um, and then they said to their employees or their union members, okay, if you pick a center that comes under this number, we're going to pay for it. Your insurance will cover it. If you go to a center that picks over this number, you're going to start paying out of pocket. And guess what? Two really interesting things happened. The first one you would predict, which is, you know, patients started looking around and saying, which one will come under come in under this price? The second thing, which is even more interesting to me, is hospitals had to you know, because of the force of these um, hundreds of thousands of employees, hospitals had to come to the table with that price. And the really, really interesting thing is a lot of hospitals that were charging over $100,000, which a lot of hospitals do for hip and knee replacements, said, okay, we can do it for that. So suddenly you have like a, a real kind of market even, but it's, it's a market that took um, a bit of managing. And I think, you know, um, William Hazeltine, who's a big fan of the Singaporean healthcare system, which people always cite as free market healthcare, it's really managed capitalism. So the, the notion that this will all work out with us, without some kind of management, whether it's from employers um, or from patients or from the government, I think is... is um, is not realistic. And yeah, you know, insurers, you might trust that if they were not for profit, but, and I'm not saying they shouldn't be, but they are for profit. And so their primary uh, allegiance is to their shareholders. And if people want to know why their premiums and deductibles are going up, as you said, and this is not just within the ACA, it's happening for those of us with uh, private insurance as well. Um, it's because the prices are going up and because the insurers, when the prices go up, what's their first line of, of um, their first response, if they can? It's to just pass on those increases to the patients in right. the form of premiums and deductibles. And we, mean, we need to pause there just because I'm way, way, way past the time we need to take a break here. Although we'll, I just do want to quickly say one thing that I learned from the book, American Sickness, whose author, Elizabeth Rosenthal, you're, looking, you're listening to right now, uh, American, American Sickness, how healthcare became big business and how you can take it back. One of the things I learned about Singapore is I think they have a government website where they just publish what things cost everywhere. Like, <laughs> and you can just go on their website and find out how much things are, um, like in various places, too. Anyway, we have to take, take a quick break. We'll be back with more of Elizabeth Rosenthal and Dan Har after this. From infant mortality to our lifespan. We're 37th in the world. I think we need a better plan. Money hungry insures pharmaceutical greed. Outrageous co-pays for the meds we need. In the richest nation we got on this earth. Your health ain't a ride. All right. So uh, we're talking to Elizabeth Rosenthal, uh, who's the author of An American Sickness, How Healthcare Became Big Business and How You Can Take It Back. She's both a journalist and an MD. Uh, also with us, Dan Haar, uh, who is a columnist for the uh, um, uh, Hartford Current, is able to do sort of small outpatient surgeries. Um, but um, 
Okay, we I sort of screwed up the time here. Like we used way too much time in this first segment, and I just can't emphasize enough. This is just a book you're going to have to get and read. There's 20 things that we have in our notes to talk about. We're just not going to get to because the subject's so vast, and Elizabeth goes gets into so many interesting things. So, I mean, really, if there's a book I want everybody who listens to this show to read this year, it's An American Sickness. So, um, consider that your homework. So, let's just talk. Let's talk about pharmaceuticals for a second. Uh, um, uh, Elizabeth, um, one of one, you've got these 10 rules. Not rules for best practices in good healthcare, but rules that really describe the way the system works. And one of them, number five, is there's no free choice. Patients are stuck buying an, buying American. And one of the many stories you tell, and I'll I'll use it because it's pretty close, I guess, to where I'm sitting right now, is a story of somebody named Betty Glassman. Uh, she was paying uh, twenty-two thousand dollars a year for a breast cancer drug that Britain's National Health Services says should cost sixteen hundred, not twenty-two thousand. She was actually getting a trio of drugs. Her insurer was being billed 24000 for that trio. Her deductible and copay per cycle in, in, in two different rounds was around $3,500. Italian researchers say that trio of drugs could should cost $750 per cycle, not 24000 and not a deductible plus copay of 3500 So, I mean, this is n- not new news that drugs in America cost this insane amount of money, even compared to how much those same drugs cost in other countries and other markets. But, I mean, what what did you learn about this? What did you learn about this that helped you understand what's going on here? Well, I think the most shocking thing to me in terms of the pharmaceuticals is something called sticky pricing, which is kind of the opposite of how markets should work. Um, basically, what you see, and I, the example I like of this is in the, the drugs for multiple sclerosis, which are fabulous. They've really improved people's lives. You know, people who used to be wheelchair bound uh, at, at a certain point of life now lead productive lives. It's still, a, you know, a difficult debilitating disease, but um, it's really, really changed people's lives. So these drugs, there are a whole bunch of them. Um, and every few years, a new one comes into the market. And, you know, you would think, okay, good, you're an economist. New competition, that should bring down price. But what you see is the new one um, sets the price maybe $1,000 higher than the old ones. And guess what? What happens is all the old ones see, oh, they're getting away with that. And they all raise their price to that that sticky high price. And so what you see is that in the U.S. alone in the world, these drugs have gotten more and more expensive over time as the amount of competition has increased, as opposed to in the rest of the world where they've gone down in price. So yeah, I, I, I think it's it's the – and these these drugs now cost uh, about $6,500 a month, a mm. month for, for, for these drugs. There's um, a story in the book about a wonderful woman named Mary Chapman who um, – you know, is a former uh, consultant who has has this disease, is a really active, informed, smart, troubleshooting woman. She's had to, with insurance, she's had to sell her jewelry. She's had to sell her car. She's had to move to uh, away from California, which was her home base, to a cheaper place to live just in order to afford these drugs with insurance. Mm. Um, and that's tragic. So I was listening to one of your other interviews on my device, which doesn't have a great speaker, and I thought you had said stinky pricing. And I thought, I, oh, no. I figured, so <laughs> it I, so, is stinky, so, but no, this is sticky. So I wrote down in my notes, <laughs> ask about stinky pricing. And I, I, I think we should change that name. That's up to you. Uh, it seems to me that the problem is that the combination of no 
pricing no the, the, there's no downward pricing power that is everybody pays what they're going to pay because they perceive that again if this is 1% better I'm going to pay any amount any amount of money more and secondly every little thing whether it's in pharmaceuticals medical devices or specialty care is a mini uh, uh, monopoly sort of a miniopoly or mini monopoly and so th- those two things conspire to drive prices up uh, in part uh, a- along with all the other conspiratorial forces that you've been describing. Well, Elizabeth, as you write, I think it was 2006, we had the opportunity to use Medicare to negotiate drug prices down. Right. And, and well, you, you can give the punchline there. <laughs> we can't. <laughs> it's the, the, the punchline for almost every piece of, or not almost, every piece of federal legislation on health care is that you're not allowed to consider pricing. So, you know, that leads you to these bizarre situations. And another wonderful story um, that I that that really blew me away in the book was um, a, about a, a drug called non-24 or a, a drug that treats a condition called non-24. Many people may have seen it advertised on late night TV. It treats a sleep-wake disorder in people who are totally blind. Um, you know, useful for a very small number of people, but advertised widely on late night TV. And the kind of crazy thing when I started looking at, you know, what is this drug? It's an analog of melatonin, you know, and and um, and yet it's it's being billed at, I think, something like $8,000 a month, and it's approved. Now, why? Why would anyone do that? The answer is because the FDA for drug approval asked that things be safe and effective, right? Again, this is the the road to hell is paved in good intentions. When there weren't many drugs out there, maybe that's what you wanted, just to know it was safe and effective. But now you want to know effective compared to all the other stuff that's out there, because there is a lot of other stuff. So, you know, the the MS drugs haven't been compared to each other. This new drug for non-24 hasn't been studied compared to melatonin, and it doesn't have to be to get approved. And then, of course, what happens you say people want something that's one percent better, even if it costs ten, you know, a thousand percent more. I don't think that's actually true. Maybe if you have some kind of really, really serious illness, but a lot of the really expensive drug prices now are for completely ordinary drugs, where the 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 physician who's prescribing the drug, um, and there's another drug, something called Duexis, which combines um, a painkiller and an acid indigestion, uh, an H2 blocker like Pepsid. Mm. It, it costs $1,500 a month. Um, why would anyone prescribe that? You know, And you know what happens is the, the, the drug salesman goes to the doctor's office and says, I've got this great new thing. A lot of people who are on ibuprofen have stomach upset. So we put together the ibuprofen with uh, an H2 blocker, and it, you know it'll make your patients happy. And the doctor thinks, yeah, that makes sense. Sure, why not? And the doctor doesn't know and doesn't know to ask, well, how much is it going to cost? Right. Plus, and they buy only when the um, right. And let, the, let me just the, let me just break in here just because we got we've got we got a lot of uh, some calls yeah, coming in sorry. here, and some of them are pretty relevant, including Elizabeth. You were just talking about MS drugs. Here's uh, Stephen in Granby, who I believe is on an MS drug. Hi, Stephen. What's your story? Hi, Colin. So, yeah, I've been on. Um, Tysabri now for four years, which is a Biogen MS drug. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And four years ago, it was around 7500 a month is what they billed my insurance company. Uh, now up to 20 mm. uh, And we're waiting for this new primary progressive drug to come out. Uh, I, I have no idea what that's going to cost, but uh, it could be effective as well. All right. So, um, and I don't know, have you asked your... First of all, is your insurance company bearing most of the brunt of this right now? 
Eighty percent of it. Eighty percent of it. So, and have you asked any questions about that, or like you know, try to find out why why it's more expensive all of a sudden? I mean, this is. Or, or let me just switch it over to Elizabeth for a second. Just hang on in here for a second, Steve. Uh, this is the point that you're making, which is that usually when something's been sitting around a while <laughs> on the market, it gets cheaper. It doesn't get go from seventy five hundred to twenty thousand. So, Elizabeth, what's the mechanism by what that ha- by which that happens? Well, this is the classic sticky pricing mechanism. And, you know, you can argue that, okay, as things get older, you've you've paid off your research and development costs, right? This is not about research and development. This is about um, prices will rise to what the market will bear. And our market, with very few controls, bears a lot. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, if I had MS or if I had anything, I would get... um that, yeah, Danny's pointing out that 7500 is still an awful lot of money per year, but uh, I would get this book because also some of the stuff that we're not going to have time to get into about buying your drugs overseas and stuff like that is to be really useful to people who are paying out of pocket a tremendous amount for drugs. We may not have time to get into that. In fact, we're going to take a break. Francine, I am going to try to get to your question because it's germane, uh, but our time is limited. Let's take a break. We'll come back. The World Health Organization ranks the U.S. 37th in overall health system performance. USA! USA! Suck it, Thailand! You're never going to catch us! Today's show was produced by Betsy Kaplan and me, Kion Wolf. Amanda Fish had a Finn replacement in Finland. The part of Bill Curry was played by Dr. Nick from The Simpsons. On tomorrow's show, the best cannibalism show ever. And now, back to Colin. It is going to be the best cannibalism show ever, but I don't have time to talk about it. So Dan Harz over this in studio uh, from the Hartford Current. Elizabeth Rosenthal's with us, her book, An American Sickness, How Healthcare Became Big Business and How You Can Take It Back. I do want to say something, if we haven't said it already, and it's in the epilogue to Elizabeth's book, which is, this isn't to say that there aren't tremendous medical professionals out there who really do care a lot about patient care and feel every bit as trapped in an ugly and exploitive system as the patients do, because there's plenty of them. In fact, I'm going to see my skin doctor this afternoon. He's very old school. You know, he's like, <laughs> I think he's intentionally tried not to get sucked into the system. So he's an individual practitioner. Last time I was there, they did not still have a credit card reader. Uh, so there you go. Um, and, and, and I do th- feel as though one measure of of and li- reading your book, Elizabeth, I I'm I have that double down. If you go to some medical professional who seems to have like a hot new exciting piece of equipment, a brand new one every time you go in, that, that should worry you a little bit. I think. Yeah, I think you know, and and it's really important to say that the the answer isn't have this adversarial relationship with your primary care doctor. It's to me, it's much more you partner with that person who cares about your costs. Obviously, you know, a lot of patients. Uh, one one surgeon said to me, who who's come around to really thinking uh, about this subject. Um, he's a, a general surgeon. He said, I took out this guy's appendix and realized I'd bankrupted his family because the hospital charged $30,000 for a 24-hour stay. So, you know, 
doctors don't feel good about this. They want to work with you on this. It's just they feel as trapped in this system and as resentful of this system as any patient. And, you know, patients deal with it when they're sick. Doctors deal with the craziness, the paperwork, the pre-approvals, the denials 24-7. So, um, you know, but I do ask my physician now if I need to get an X-ray. Um, send me to the cheapest um, facility near here that you know is reliable. He knows that. I don't. And he's willing to partner with me in that. And at first, when you ask that question, they won't know. But after a while, they learn. And I want my doctor to say to the guy who's charging $2,000 for a wrist x-ray, hey, I'm not sending my patients to you anymore because you're ripping them off. All right. We just lost Francine, whose call I was going to take. But um, one thing that I'm kind of hoping you'll do, Elizabeth uh, Rosenthal, is as uh, sequels to American Sickness. Uh, I think you need American Sickness Mental and American Sickness Dental. Um, your book um, is tremendous, but like the whole mental health industry and and the whole pharmacopoeia for mental health is a really problematic area. And then dentistry, you know, which really affects overall health too. Uh, you know, Sarah Silverman says death comes in through the gums. Um, it, that's a place where people, because insurance isn't anywhere as comprehensive, uh, they really do wind up paying a lot out of pocket. But I, I don't know that they understand, we understand that any better than we, un- we understand the rest. No, and I think some of the, the really big issues in our aging population have to do with dentistry, um, hearing aids, which we don't support, and mental health, which we don't support. So, you know, um, yeah, there's a lot that isn't said in this book. I'm mm. just trying to focus on the real core issues that we face from um, birth to death, basically. All right. So I'm going to hand you kind of a limited power, each one of you, uh, kind of limited power magic wand. Let's say you, you can't wave the magic wand and get anything you want. Like Let's say you can't get single payer health insurance uh, for the United States, but you could get something maybe a little bit short of that, or you can get some significant modifications of the system. And Elizabeth, I'll let you start. What What, what would you hope using your magic wand you might be able to get to make this better? What would, what would be a, a really good big fix? Well, I'm a journalist, so I can't, like, tell you too much about my own preferences. But I think since both parties have now said we've got to do something about high drug prices, and there have been bipartisan bills both to allow Medicare to uh, negotiate drug prices and to allow um, prescription drug imports from Canada, both of which would help, neither of which would solve the problem. Um, we should all be looking at our congressmen and senators to why they keep holding hearings and not being able to pass a bill that will address this really fundamental problem. Okay. Dan? I'd like to see a conversation in the nation about the quality of personal care for health and its connection to the cost of American health care. I don't necessarily agree that we're number 37 in delivery of quality services. We're number 37 in outcome per dollar spent. Uh, and some of the responsibility belongs to the healthcare consumer. And I think that there's so much screwed up in the system that the healthcare consumer has to put up with that that's really the public policy issue. But there's also a personal component of this. People don't take care of themselves. Um, you know, Elizabeth, um, single payer, Medicare for all, whatever you want to call it, um, is a dream a lot of us have had for a long time. It's a very tough thing to achieve. Um, but I, I, I wonder what the what you see is the obstacles to the so-called public option. So this differs from single payer in the sense that you could continue to get your health care from Anthem Blue Cross or from Cigna or Aetna or whoever you get it from right now. But there would also be an available government program that was run more or less the way Medicare is run and, and that it would compete with these private entities. Like, I know why we don't have that, because the private entities don't want to compete with that. But 
Is that the reason we can't have it? I mean, is that so far out of reach? Um, well, I think the reason it is is because uh, obviously lobbying and the business of healthcare has a tremendous influence here in Washington, where I sit now. And who's who's representing the patients' interests? Uh, nobody really. So I think part of why I wrote this book is to make patients aware that they need to um, raise their voices. They need to become healthcare voters, and they need to say this is what we need because right now what happens in D.C. is yes, there was this public option on the table for the ACA. Um, you couldn't get the ACA passed with that because of lobbying pressure. So who counteracts that? voters with their votes and their voices. And we've been pretty silent. We've been pretty complacent about how we want this system to work for us. And it was partly because for many years, those of us who were lucky enough to have insurance didn't pay the costs, right? Our, our premiums were paid by our, by our employers and deductibles were minimal. You know, now that's changed for everyone within the ACA and out. And so I think it's affecting us all. If you want to know why you haven't gotten a raise in the last five years, it's probably because your company has been paying increasing health care prices. So it's really time for all of us to pay attention. So, so, so I'll give you 45 seconds. So, so a corollary to that is the fact that we don't have a debate about cost. In this conversation, we've yes. been talking a lot about cost and a lot about allocating the price as it is. And there is no ACA reform, nor was there much of an ACA discussion in 2009 and 10 about bringing costs down. There are a number of initiatives. Some of them work pretty well. We've got one in Connecticut here in the Medicaid system. Uh, why not? Is it just too complicated? Why isn't it happening? That we, we are going to have to have that conversation another day. We are flat out of time. I do want to thank Elizabeth. Look, I, I'll have you guys back. I think that there's four hours of show that we could do about this. Um, we've been talking to Elizabeth Rosenthal, uh, An American Sickness is her book, How Healthcare Became Big Business, How You Can Take It Back. It's a book. It reads kind of like a really long, interesting magazine article. I mean, you can breeze through this. Uh, and I really recommend that you do it. There's just so much stuff that we didn't get into today. Dan Har, we would, how would I dare have a conversation here in Hartford, surrounded by hospitals, without uh, the Hartford Current's crusading columnist? All right, we'll be back tomorrow with cannibalism, which I'm, that could be where we're headed, you know? Hi, I think I have the flu, and I'm calling to find out about my coverage. Well, reviewing your account looks like laughter is going to be your best medicine. <laughs> I'm sorry, but it looks like you're only covered for snickers and giggles. <laughs>